you reach for your Bibles as we transition into our scripture reading for today, and turn with me to James chapter 2. We have moved on. We have taken big steps over the last few weeks, and we moved on to chapter 2. And as Brother Kevin alluded to last week, we get to move on to one new page. So if you need a pew Bible, please find one located in front of you, and you can find today's scripture reading on page 1200, 1200. I'll be reading James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 7. Follow along as I read James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised through those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Father, we come, Lord. Father, we come, we humbly come, and we thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you that he went to the cross, that he died for our sins, Lord. Father, my prayer this morning is that everyone here knows and that it is well with their soul. And if there be one, two, or several here that have questions, that today would be the day that they would put their life, their hope, their trust in you. Be with Brother Bruce as he brings today's message. Use him as your vessel, Lord. Open our hearts and open our ears that we would just focus on your words. Speak to us this morning, and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, I wish I could say that we live in a world where there is no favoritism. I wish I could tell you that we live in a world where there is no discrimination, but we don't. I wish I could stand before you here this morning, and I wish I could tell you that no one will treat you less or treat you better because of your age or your appearance your economic status or your skin color, your ethnicity or your nationality, your your education or your occupation, but people often do in our world. I wish I could tell you that people everywhere treat everyone with equal dignity, respect, and value as a person made in the image of God, but I cannot the reason is we live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-filled world where, where favoritism and discrimination in all their various forms are real and present among us. The Bible actually calls this partiality. Several years ago, an article in the Philadelphia Magazine stated, if New York is known for money and Los Angeles is known for fame, then Philadelphia is known for conflict. And today, that conflict is the, is the air we breathe in our cities and across our country. 
Paul Tripp writes, it's a nasty culture of division where race is pitted against race, class is pitted against class, special interest groups are pitted against special interest groups, all for power and position. It's an endless game of divide and conquer. And God, in his sovereignty, sovereignty has placed his church, our church, smack dab in the middle of this culture. And it's God's people who are now called to approach these issues with an entirely different perspective. It's a perspective that James refers to as pure and undefiled religion, what we have called last week true religion. The problem is, although most of us here, if not all of us, we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we still enter into God's family with baggage. We all come to church carrying the luggage of our former lives. And in one of those pieces of luggage we carry is the culture's way of treating people that is all too often based on their, their accent, their economic status, or their political affiliation, or even the color of their skin. And so here's the question that is now being raised by James here in this passage. Does your religion, in other words, as we learned last Sunday, does your faith in Jesus Christ, does it cause you now to treat everyone with the love of God? And here's the answer we're going to see from James in these first seven verses. Actually, it's, it's verses 1 through 13 that James deals with this issue of partiality. We're breaking it up into two parts. We'll look at the, the second part last Sunday, and here's the, the answer to that question. You'll notice it in your notes on the screen, and that is true religion. In other words, true faith, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, loves all people. How? By destroying the sin of partiality, as well as displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the issue that James deals with here in verses 1 through 13. Look at it again with me. As James says in verse 1, he states it clearly here when he says, My brothers. And again, we've already seen that that term brothers is a gender neutral term, gender neutral term to refer to both men and women, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. In other words, all of God's family. He says, my brothers, and here's the command, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The New Living Translation frames this first verse actually as a question. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? That is a great question for us here who claim to be Christ followers. It's a great question for us to consider. In other words, James is asking, how can you claim to have genuine faith in Jesus Christ? That is true religion when you are showing partiality. And notice James' answer. We'll look at this in more detail next Sunday. But notice his answer. This is the overarching answer to the issue of partiality. And we find it here in verses 8 and 9 when he says, If you really fulfill the royal law 
according to the scripture. And what is that royal law? He now defines it for us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you do that, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So what James is showing us here is that true religion fulfills this royal law of love. In other words, it loves all people. How? By destroying the sin of partiality and displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, James, what he's doing here, he's actually confronting the sin of partiality, specifically not in the culture, but rather in the church, which was prevalent within the church because at that time in which James is writing this, the Jews and the Gentiles hated one another. And then on top of that, there was the class issues between the rich and the poor and the free and the slaves. And all of these problems were now being imported into the church in the first century when the Jews and Gentiles now came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, became believers in Christ, and then came together in the body of Christ. And let me tell you, it didn't take long for people to start unpacking their baggage in the church. And that's what James is addressing here. In fact, it was only a matter of months in the Jerusalem church specifically when the first division within that church arose and the complaints were aired among the people in the congregation. Aired over what? What complaints? Over, over favoritism being shown toward the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows over the Greek-speaking Jewish widows. And that issue had to be addressed. And now James is addressing this issue to all these scattered Jewish believers in these various churches. Now, before moving on, we probably ought to stop here, at least pause long enough to make sure we're all on the same page with the definition of what partiality is. So notice this in your notes on the screen. Partiality, here's how we're going to define it for us here. Partiality makes unfair judgments. So immediately, partiality is all about judgments or making distinctions. And in this case, partiality makes unfair judgments or distinctions. And, there, and then that leads one to take unjust actions. And it's all based on external criteria. That's partiality. Now, the word that James used here for partiality, it, it literally means to receive a face. To receive a face. So it involves making judgments about a person based upon their face. In other words, their appearance. It, partiality, it developed into this idea of, of treating someone better or treating them less based on their face or outward experience appearance, it developed into the idea of showing favor to someone based on external criteria, such as one's clothes, their, one's race, their status, their wealth, their rank, regardless of one's character and heart. Now, we, we all struggle with this. We all struggle by judging people by their appearance. And we know that God does not, thankfully, Right? In fact, we, we know this from what he tells us in 1 Samuel 16, 7. There it reminds us that man looks on the outward appearance. That's, that's what human nature does. But the Lord looks on the heart. In fact, God even warned his people in the Old Testament about allowing partiality to creep in 
and pervert their justice. In Deuteronomy 19.15, where it says, God says to them, do not pervert justice. How? How do you pervert justice? Specifically here, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbors fairly. For example, even today, when a judge takes a bribe, it's not just one injustice that occurs, it's two injustices. One is a rich person gets special treatment he should not be getting, and the poor person is denied justice that he should be getting. And so this sin of partiality, let me tell you, it is a big deal to God. In fact, James is going to take 13 verses to deal with it. And the reason it's such a big deal to God is because it's actually a double-sided sin. That is, on one side is it's the sin of favoritism, and on the other side is the sin of discrimination. Think about it. When you treat someone better based on external criteria, that's favoritism. But when you treat someone less based on external criteria, that's discrimination. And James confronts this sin now head on. And he does so, and I love this about James, he does so, by presenting to us these gospel arguments against partiality in the Christian life or in the church. So let's break it down. Let's look at it here for a few minutes, this problem of partiality. Number one, we need to, first of all, heed this clear command by James to show no partiality. Again, look at what James states in verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so immediately you see here that James is linking, tying together partiality with what? He's linking it to our faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So in other words, it is, it is our faith. James wants us to know something here, that it's our faith in Christ that does what? That brings all people together into the family of God. Regardless of one's age or appearance, their gender, their race or status. And folks, that is the beauty of the gospel. That is the glory of the Jesus Christ in the gospel. Which means this problem of partiality, it's really at the heart of it. it is a, it's a gospel issue here. And that's how James tackles it. James wants us to see, notice this, that partiality is incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ, and it actually insults the very glory of Jesus Christ. So James is telling us something up front here immediately. He's making crystal clear to us that partiality in true religion or partiality in faith in Jesus Christ is is clearly incompatible with each other. In other words, they don't belong together. It's inconsistent. Now, just think about that in relation to the person of Jesus Christ. Think about the way Jesus treated people during his time here on earth. Jesus did not treat people better or less based on how they looked or how they spoke or how much money they had. John Phillips writes, and I quote, he he, alluding to Jesus Christ, he was as kind to the Samaritan woman at the well as he was to Nicodemus, that Pharisee. 
He was as gracious to the unclean woman who touched the hem of his garment as he was to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus was as available to blind Bartimaeus as he was to the rich young ruler. Jesus gave the outcasts and untouchables as much as offer of salvation as he did the scribes and Pharisees. And John MacArthur writes, he adds this to it, Jesus' overriding concern was the condition of people's souls. In other words, James is basically saying here, do the same thing now. You call yourselves Christ followers, imitate Jesus. Treat people the same way Jesus did. Why? Because partiality and Christianity, true religion, are incompatible. So James says, stop holding your faith in Christ. Stop doing that with this attitude of partiality towards one another. Now, we cannot miss the emphasis, though, that James places on the glory of Jesus Christ here in verse 1. That is that Christ's majesty and his supremacy is overall and above all. What James is doing with that, he's drawing a dramatic contrast between the, the true glory of Jesus Christ and the false glory of the world. One of the reasons that partiality actually insults the glory of Christ is because when, when you and I, when we treat people better based on their power or their status or their wealth, we are, in a sense, we are ascribing glory to them. Now, we may not verbalize that glory to them, but by our actions and how we treat them, that's what we're doing. Now, this word glory in the Bible, it oftentimes carries the notion of weight or worth And so when we show partiality, we are in a sense saying, even though we may not say this verbally, by attitude and actions, we are saying, this person carries a lot of weight. This person has clout. This person is really influential. This person, in other words, is glorious. And this insults the glory of Christ, who is supreme over the powerful and the wealthy. In other words, You don't honor the wealthy because they are rich in money. You honor Christ because he alone is rich in glory. Here's the point James is making. In the presence of Jesus Christ, in the presence of his glory, all of us look shabby. In other words, the rich have nothing to brag about before the glory of Jesus. And the poor have nothing to be ashamed of in his presence. So James is is saying, he's exhorting to us, let us heed now this clear command to show no partiality. Why? Because partiality is incompatible with our faith in Christ, and it actually insults the very glory of Jesus Christ. Now, number two, see the disgraceful example of partiality in the church. James now gives us an example of the kind of partiality he's talking about. And it, and it doesn't seem to be just an isolated problem in an isolated church. It actually seems to be a rather common problem in the churches that he is writing to. So look what he says here in verses 2 through 4. 
he starts off for if. So we know immediately he's given us an example, an illustration. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions? In other words, have you not then made judgments among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I actually think it's rather helpful to see this example of partiality in the church the way, the way James logically lays it out for us in these verses. And so that's what I want us to do. Notice, first of all, the for if here in verse 2. The for if. In other words, for if... Two different men. So we have two different men in this illustration. Enter a gathering of the church, the the gathered assembly of the church. One man, a rich man, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and a poor man in shabby clothing. So the first man to enter the gathering of the church, let me tell you, he's very rich. And it's obvious he's very rich. How? By wearing the gold ring and fine clothing. And so James is now presenting to us a man of status and wealth. In fact, James is using a word that literally means gold-fingered. Gold-fingered. The idea is this man is wearing a ring on every finger. Why? Because even in the culture of James' day, the more bling you wore, the more status you held. And so this man is also, we're told, wearing not just a gold ring, but he's wearing, quote, fine clothing, Or literally, he's wearing clothing that was bright or shiny. In fact, this word for fine clothing, it was actually used to describe the bright clothing of the angel in Acts chapter 10, verse 30. So this is a grab-your-attention kind of clothing this man is wearing. So think of it like this. Here is a rich man who looked like money. He smelled like money walking into a church service. When a poor man in shabby clothing walks in behind him. This poor man, or this man is very poor, and again, it's obvious he's poor. The reason for that is because of the word that James uses here. He actually uses a word for beggar. And the word for shabby refers to clothing that is filthy. So we might think of it this way. People can smell this man before they even begin to see this man. And when they do see him, it's obvious he is a poor beggar who's filthy and smelly. And the point that James is about to make is our response to both of these men. Notice it now. And if, so James is now presenting us a scenario. And if, in verse 3, two different responses come from the church. The rich man gets the best seat in the house, while the poor man gets standing room only. So the two men in this illustration, this example, are now in the church, and the church is packed out. So how did the people respond to these two men? Well, we see two different responses came from the church. James writes in verse 3, look at it again with me. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say to him, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Now, what's interesting, this phrase, pay attention to. That's a key phrase in the illustration because it actually means to to look at with admiration or to, to look at with favor. In other words, people 
welcomed this rich man, and they did so with admiration and with favor, so much so they offered him the best seat in the house. But they ignored the poor man at first who came in after him. Now, eventually, they, they offered him standing room only, or they offered that he can sit on the floor under someone's feet. And immediately by that, you see the connotation of humility, servitude. You're not worthy. You sit under me. Since nobody is willing to give up their seat for a poor man who's filthy and smelly. Now, James, in this illustration, lowers the boom here in verse 4, and he does so with the first of several rhetorical questions that we'll see to the end of verse 7. Notice the, the then in verse 4. He says, Then have you not shown partiality by making distinctions based upon external criteria and become judges with evil thoughts? So he's, he's framing it in a question here. And the obvious answer to this rhetorical question is what? Yes. He expects the churches here to answer, yes, we have shown partiality by doing this. Listen, anytime you make distinctions, judgments, based on external factors, and then you treat people differently, you show them partiality. And James adds to that that you've actually placed yourself in the place of God and become judges And not righteous judges, but judges with evil thoughts. Which tells us that partiality is not just a matter of how you treat people. It's also a matter of what you think about people as well as how you look at them based on external criteria. Now... If I may be so bold, I think you would agree with me that if this kind of partiality was a problem in the church in James' day, then we can probably be sure it's still a problem in our day that we at least need to guard against. Would you agree with me with that? Absolutely. So James' point here is rather clear. Partiality, it is unchristian, and it's unchristlike. And therefore, it is incompatible with true religion or true faith in Jesus Christ. Sam Alberry, in his commentary on James, he writes, it says, in effect, that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. And correspondingly, that someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. Partiality ends up judging one person's soul as being of greater value than another's. And it does all this on the basis of superficial worldly criteria. And James here will have none of it in the church. In fact, he describes such behavior as becoming judges with evil thoughts. Sometimes we maybe like to say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But unfortunately, it is not always level in the church. So partiality is not just to be frowned upon. It is not something just to be discouraged. It must be destroyed. Why? Because it's evil and it is sinful. Paraphrasing William Barclay. The church must be the one place on earth where partiality, he says, should be wiped out. 
wiped out. It should not be among the people of God. So we need to heed this command to show no partiality. We also need to somehow see ourselves in the illustration, in this example of partiality. But may we also hear now the rhetorical reason why partiality is wrong. Why it is evil, sinful. James shows us why partiality is to have no part among God's people. James is going to go through a series of rhetorical questions to do so, and each of these questions is meant to raise the issue that partiality is unreasonable among the people of God. And it actually, partiality, he's also going to raise the issue here that partiality, it, it contradicts the very gospel by which God saves all people regardless of their appearance, their age, their status, their wealth, their occupation, their education. So let us see now the unreasonableness of the sin of partiality in the church. First of all, number one, partiality dishonors those whom God honors and blesses in the gospel. It dishonors those whom God honors and blesses. So to start with, partiality, it it goes against the very grain of how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. James says that God has chosen the poor, that is poor in the eyes of the world, and he's chosen those people to inherit his salvation. In other words, God is delighted to put the glories of his redeeming work on display among the poor. Now, that is the testimony of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's also the testimony of redemptive history. God has chosen to show his grace to the poor, to those who suffer, yes, with physical needs, but more importantly, to those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty. Paul Tripp puts it this way. Every person who comes to Christ comes absolutely poor. And he's not referring to material poor, but spiritual poor. We we come with nothing to bring, nothing to hold in our hands, nothing that we could bring to Christ to somehow gain his favor. We come naked, the poor, and we have one plea. It is his blood, it is his grace. And this spiritual need that all of mankind, all of humanity has, let me tell you, it is hard for the rich, that is material rich, to acknowledge it. See, a person who doesn't have much materially in this world often understands better than others the kind of spiritual poverty and dependency that God demands if we're going to follow Jesus Christ. Whereas a lot of rich people in this world, they're too busy being rich. They're too busy being self-sufficient to sense their spiritual need of God and even their spiritual poverty. This is why Jesus said in the Gospels in Mark 10, 25, that it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus didn't say it was impossible, it's just hard. In fact, later on, Jesus will say, 
with man all things are, impos are, are impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the majority of Christians, especially in the early church in which James is writing, listen, they were from poorer backgrounds. And what James is doing here, he's now asking his readers to look at the people who are responding to the gospel. This is no different than what Paul did. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 and 27. Paul says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. Why? Because God is supreme. Christ is supreme in his glory. Now, let, let us not overstate the point, though. Neither James nor Paul is saying that God chooses only the poor and passes over all the rich in the world. They're not saying that, so don't misunderstand. But both James and Paul are pointing to how God works. He's choosing and Scripture shows this, redemptive history shows this, to show his saving grace to the poor. And notice what God is choosing them for in verse 5. Look at it. God's choosing them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love God or love him. So God has chosen the poor to have great spiritual riches. In other words, think of it this way. In Jesus Christ, they have hit the jackpot. We just had this Omega, the mega lottery winner this last week. Man, that dude hit the jackpot, right? Did you not think that? That's the world. That's how the world thinks. But let me tell you when, you, when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you have really hit the jackpot. And with that jackpot comes this wonderful spiritual destiny or spiritual dignity. In other words, you will inherit the kingdom of God, and you do so as heirs of Jesus Christ, or co-heirs with Jesus Christ, I should say. Now, again, don't misunderstand. This is not to say that God loves the rich less than he loves the poor. Why? Because we know that the rich need the gospel because they are sinners just like the poor, right? But it's not because they matter more than the poor. But all of this is to say that God is choosing to bless the very people that James readers then and even now tend to shun with partiality. So that's the first reason why it's unreasonable. Partiality it dishonors those whom God honors and blesses in the gospel. The second reason is partiality. It honors those who oppress the poor and blaspheme God's name. Now, James wants us to, to contemplate the irony of this. He, he's, he's, he's drawn this out for the, the people to see that it was the rich of all people who were actually persecuting 
these believers, these Jewish believers, and, and causing trouble for the church in James' day. And so now James asks this rhetorical question in verses 6 and 7. Look at it. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In other words, James is asking them, do you not know whom you're honoring when you show partiality? You're actually honoring the very people who are causing you trouble in slandering the name of God. Now, we've all heard of the golden rule, but do you know what the world's golden rule is? The world's golden rule says this, he who has the gold gets to rule. And that's what was happening here in James' day. The rich were taking advantage of God's people, who at that time were mostly poor, by dragging them into the courts and exploiting them for more money. These were also the same people who blasphemed the name of God, and now God's people were honoring them among themselves. And James is calling out God's people for this, for showing such partiality to the rich. Now, James, he's not saying this. He's not doing this to engender resentment and bitterness towards rich people. That should never be our attitude towards the rich. He's doing this to point out the irony of, of these believers pinning their hopes on the wealthy when their hopes ought to be tied to Jesus Christ. You see, Christians exalting the rich goes against the very grain of how God is at work. It not only dishonors those whom God honors in the gospel, but it actually dishonors God's grace in the gospel. And James is reminding us here that, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God honors everyone who believes in him for salvation. He's reminding us here that a church is a family and partiality has no place in the family of God. David Platt put it this way when he writes in his commentary on James, we ought to see everyone through the eyes of Christ. We ought to look at brothers and sisters around us regardless of wealth or socioeconomic status as those who, like us, are united to Christ for Christ lives in them. We also need to see men and women around us who are not Christians as those whom Christ created, as those whom he loves, as those whom he desires to know him. This is key for us in terms of, of how we view people, how we treat people, because when we love all people, listen, it shows that our faith is real. It shows that our religion is genuine. It's true, it's pure, it's undefiled. Now, what James is showing us here, going back to the very beginning of what we said, the big idea, he's showing us through these first seven verses that true religion loves all people. How? By doing two things. By, by destroying the sin of partiality, wiping it out from among us, but also at the same time, displaying the glory of Jesus Christ, which now leads us to an actual solution, God's solution to partiality. Notice this, and that is to seek the glory of Jesus Christ, not the glory of this world. Now, 
just, just stop for a moment and for the next few minutes. Think, think with me about this. Think with me about why people show partiality. And if it helps, think about why you show partiality. There, there may be a variety of reasons why people do, but at the core of it, the reason we show partiality is because we see someone who is glorious in our eyes. And we want the benefits of that specific glory. Now, it is also true. There is a glory, listen to me, that can be gained from this world. Is there not? Absolutely there is. In fact, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he offered Jesus that glory. You can read about it in Luke chapter 4, verse 5. And so now when we treat people better, it's because we're hoping to get something from that person. When, when we show special treatment to people with power, it's because we want to gain their favor somehow. In other words, we see in those people, and we see them as glorious, and we want to benefit in some way from their glory. That's why at the root of it, people show partiality. It's why we struggle to do it. And James is making the point here that as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot be enamored with, we cannot be enticed by this earthly glory if you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of true glory. Paul Tripp says it this way. Partiality is all about the glory that rules your heart. And just think about that for a moment, because that means discrimination is primarily a heart issue. It's why discrimination is prevalent in every society throughout history. Because we live in a sinful, fallen world that is enamored by and captured by the glory of this world instead of the glory of Jesus Christ. And although governments rightfully enact laws against discrimination, listen to me, you cannot legislate the heart. It's why even in America we still have discrimination problems. Because it's a heart issue. It's a gospel issue. So the whole issue now of partiality, whether it's showing favoritism, treating somebody better, or showing discrimination, treating somebody less based on external factors, all under the umbrella of partiality, it all comes down to this. Which glory now rules your heart? Is it the world's glory or is it Jesus' glory? Now, yes, the world's glory can be quite impressive, right? The world's glory can be quite impressive, but let me tell you, it is a temporary glory that glitters and then fades away. But Jesus' glory is supreme and everlasting. Listen, his grace and mercy are glorious. 
His power and majesty are glorious. His goodness and wisdom is glorious. His justice and righteousness is glorious. And when we here unite ourselves with Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, listen, we now become the benefactors of his glory. And yes, as God's people, we look forward to the day when his glory will be fully revealed to all of humanity. And all of that is behind what James says about the glory of Jesus Christ here in verse 1 that he now applies to our lives as Christ followers. In other words, he's saying, if you, if you get a glimpse of this glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, specifically even in the gospel, listen, you will not be moved by the sparkle of this world's glory. Instead, you will be captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ. You will seek to display the glory of Jesus Christ. In his glory, it will have a profound impact on the way that you treat people. Why? Because true religion, it loves all people regardless. It loves all peoples by destroying the sin of partiality among the people of God and displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. In doing so, because we now know, we have a perspective of the world's glory and Christ's glory, and we understand this world's glory is temporary, it's fading, it's meaningless, but the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel is what saves us. We're saved by that. Therefore, our lives ought to be impacted by that in our relationships and how we treat one another. That's what James is saying here. With your heads bowed and as we pray. But before I pray, let me ask you, and this is in your notes, it's at the bottom of your notes, do you show partiality? Do you sometimes play favorites? And I don't know about you, but this question humbles us. In our failure, it compels us to even humble ourselves before the Lord, acknowledge our sin, and receive his mercy and grace. And so, Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of your glorious grace in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge that we struggle with the sin of partiality probably way more than we like to admit. And we are stained by the world's glory instead of displaying your glory in the way we treat others. And so, Father, forgive us. Forgive us and cleanse us and help us to be a church that loves all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.